Did you ever have a uh, WWJD bracelet or a WWJD shirt? Just something. The, the idea behind it, WWJD means what would Jesus do? And bracelets like this were meant to get you to think about the proper thing to do. Um, it's really funny that when you ask people about WWJD bracelets, you get different reactions. Sometimes you get a chuckle. And, I, and I've always wanted to, I think I know why. I know why I chuckle about it. And maybe, you know, I mean, I didn't see a lot of hands go up when I asked you if you ever had one, so you're not admitting that. You're probably not going to admit that you chuckle about it sometimes, too. The reason is, is because I think the phrase, it became such a slogan that it instantly became the uh, material for jokes. People would replace the third letter, WWBD, what would Buddha do? You know, they would do things like that, put other religious figures in there, WWMD, what would Muhammad do? Then there were jokes that um, that even came from Christians, like uh, the one where two kids are fighting over the last Oreo cookie, and so the one kid wanting to uh, guilt his brother says, you know, are you sure you're going to eat that last cookie? I mean, what would Jesus do? And the kid says, he'd perform a miracle and there'd be a whole new box of Oreos. And then he eats the cookie. Then there's the one where the guy is in the um, emergency room and he wakes up from being passed out and he's got a big black eye. He said, well, what's this all about? And he goes, I don't know. He goes, my wife and I had an argument and I was trying to convince her to forgive me. And I said, you know, honey, what would Jesus do? Last thing I know, there was some talk of the temple and money changers. And then I'm waking up over here. You see, I mean, they're not particularly good jokes. I didn't say they were good jokes. But they became kind of a fad. And maybe the thing that, that was most troublesome is that people would wear the what would Jesus do bracelet and they really had no idea what Jesus would do or they were really acting the way Jesus would not. And that became a negative example to people. The intent, and I want to be clear, I think the intent behind the bracelet was great. I think it still is great. I think if you've got one of these, I don't want to take that away from you. If it helps you to live like Christ, if it helps you to want to know Christ better, then God bless you. I don't want to take that away from anybody. But if it didn't work for you, don't feel bad about that. There's, There's a lot of intent behind this, but... But what is it that Jesus would do? By the way, the, the, the theory or the idea behind it is very biblical. Because it came at just the right time, this what would Jesus do movement. It came at a time when Christians in America were, were very concerned about how Christianity needs to be redefined in a so-called Christian nation that doesn't seem very Christian. And so Christianity was often equated with defending certain issues. You could say historically that Christianity has always been a defense of certain beliefs. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in baptism. We we believe in certain things. And so you defend those things. However, that became tiresome at times because Christians would divide over certain issues. How could both sides be defending the truth if there's division? 
later on, and especially in the last century, uh, the, the later half of the 20th century, Christianity became defined in America as defending certain political issues. So Christians are going to be those who stand up for certain causes or who defend certain things. And now all of that is getting changed once again. But Christianity certainly is more than just defending issues or believing certain issues. I'm not saying that that's not an important part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Certainly Jesus calls us to believe in Him and to believe in the One who sent Him. But there's more than just belief. Sometimes Christianity is defined as proper worship. That the people who worship a particular way are the followers of Jesus. And you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. That the way we worship, the way we come to Jesus, the way our hearts are prepared to sing praises to Him, to encourage one another, to be shaped by His Word, to remember Him as we come around the Lord's Supper table, all of that matters. But as we often remind each other, it's got to matter more than just an hour or two on the first day of the week. It has to be more than that. that. That's just one part of it. The what would Jesus do movement came along at just the right time when Christianity was either seen as, well, these people believe this, or these people worship in this way, or these people believe these certain causes, or these people worship at this place under this banner. And the what would Jesus do movement came along and reminded us that an important part of Christianity is behavior. That the way we act and the way we conduct ourselves matters and if there was anything good that came out of the what would jesus do movement and the what would jesus do jewelry it was this emphasis on behavior that emphasis on behavior that that it is important as a christian to practice what is preached comes along at just the right time in history it came along at just the right time well within the last 30 years or so, when when there's a lot of Christian scandals with people who say they believe in Christ or they represent Christ, but they behave poorly. And there are scandals all the way from the Catholic Church scandals to the evangelical scandals, even to the local experiences of people in divided churches where people who claim to have the name of Christ don't really seem to act that way. An emphasis on behavior. It may be time to return to this emphasis on behavior because we have a growing population in this country of people who are called the religiously unaffiliated. One of the fastest growing religious groups are the nuns. Not the N-U-N nuns, the N-O-N-E nuns. None of the above. They're not saying they don't believe in God. They're not saying that they don't have a relationship with God. They're just saying, we're not going to sign up with any of his franchise organizations. That group, in the last seven years, has gone from 16% of respondents to um, the census to 23%. It's a pretty impressive increase for seven years. And I think one of the reasons that that's happening, again... It's not altogether a rejection of Christ, 
But you have people who say, I'm not going to be put into a particular category other than Christian. And as we said last week, that's one of the, that's one of the hallmarks of our movement in America in the 1800s. That people thought, isn't it just possible to simply be Christian, to be a follower of Christ? So everything about that statistic does not necessarily have to be alarming. And in fact, if it causes us to emphasize again the importance of behavior as an identifying mark of a Christian, then we need to recover it. What we believe on the issues, the way we worship, those have often been singled out as identifying marks of Christians. But I tell you that right up there on that list ought to also be behavior. Jesus gave his identifying mark of his followers in John 13. He said, people will know that you're mine, that you're my followers, if you do what? If you love one another. And that love is expressed in behavior, as we'll see in Ephesians. When it comes to behavior... Ephesians makes it clear that God is at work within us. His power is the one that's working to make us into more than what we can be on our own. You see that the values of God, the virtues that God cherishes, and the vision of God for human life, and I don't mean just your life individually, but the way we relate to one another, all of that gets reflected in the behavior of that comes from people who are living for God. And by the way, this is all part of God's salvation plan. That's what Ephesians 1 through 3 taught us. Do we ever stop and realize, listen, you can tune out on me in other places. Don't tune out on this one, okay? Do we ever stop and realize how big the salvation plan is? God wants to save me, and I'm so thankful for that. And God wants to save each and every one of you, and I know you're thankful for that. Because we can't save ourselves. We don't have that ability. Behavior is not a matter of doing enough good works that God has to let you in that you pass the test. But his salvation plan doesn't stop there. He wants to save me. He wants to save Brent. But then he wants to save the relationship that we have with each other. He wants to put us into a redeemed community. He wants to save all of the relationships that we have with each other, and that's why unity and behavior is so important to God. He's not only saving us as individuals, he's saving the relationships that we have with one another, and then he's saving our relationship to creation, to all of creation. And that goes another step further we don't have time to get into right now. But do you understand how big the salvation program of God is? It's, again, it's part of his wondrous plan is what Paul calls it in the first three chapters. God is building a people. And he said that based on the foundation that's Christ, Christ is the cornerstone of that building. And in salvation, God is growing us into a people who act a certain way, who do certain things. The day that you are baptized into Christ, and that might be today, that, that might have been a long time ago. That might be if some days from now. But the day that you're baptized into Christ, God doesn't stop working on you. He's continuing to work his salvation work in you. You are being built into something for his purposes. Your 
what you bring into the body of Christ is being added with all the other members of the body of Christ, and you are growing. If baptism is a birth into a new life, those who are newly born need a lot of help along the way. And then they start to help others. Well, it's the same way. We are growing in the body of Christ. Behavior in Christ is not a matter of flawless perfection. And, and by the way, don't let the critics get to you. There are critics within the church and, with, and outside the church who will point to the mistakes that people will make. And that will give a place for Satan to accuse you. Yeah, well, Christians shouldn't act this way. See, you acted that way once. We got you. It doesn't mean that that's not something we shouldn't have done or there's not some need for repentance or some need for forgiveness. But again, the goal is not flawless perfection. The goal is growth. The goal is striving to grow up and to become more mature in Christ. And so if we're being built around the cornerstone that is Jesus and on the foundation that God set down, then we begin to see a vision of a kind of people who live differently than any other vision that the world can give you. I have no problem with what would Jesus do. If it's okay, I just like to turn the letters around a little bit. I guess if I had a bracelet... I would take WWJD and I would rearrange it to, w, to DWJD. Do what Jesus does. Because the difference there goes from just a thought exercise, what would Jesus do, to now you've got a very serious imperative. Do what Jesus does. You know, Nike did very well. You know their slogan. Everybody ready? I'm going to say it on the count of three. One, two, three. See, you know that. Now, how did you know that? Because they're very successful with that. That's an imperative. An imperative makes it simple. It says, cut out the excuses, just do it. That's pretty good that you knew that. Now, if we, if we could work on this, do what Jesus does. Now, it's, it's no longer just a thought exercise but now it becomes an imperative. And Ephesians, especially the last three chapters, are filled with imperatives. An imperative is an instruction. It's a command. It's a, it has a little bit of force behind it. And it's loaded with it. I want to try to give you some sense of that at the end of chapter 4, going into chapter 5. You know, there's no way like there is in the original language to really make an imperative statement in English. I need, I need like a little imperative flag or something, or an imperative flashlight, and then whatever you see it, you know, you know that that word's an imperative. But maybe if you just hear it, you'll get it pretty. Let me put it like this. Almost every verb you're going to hear is an imperative. Verse 25, Paul is building off of this plan of God that's been revealed, and he says, So then, putting away everything that's false, speak the truth to each other. Speak the truth to your neighbor because we're members with one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. The person who steals from others, don't steal anymore. Instead, work. 
Work with your own hands so that you might have something to share with those who have a need. And every unfit, unproductive, rotten word, don't let that come out of your mouth. Instead, let something good that can build others up, let that come out of your mouth so that you can give grace to those who hear it. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, because all of you were sealed with that Spirit for the day of redemption. And all bitterness and rage and anger and shouting and insulting, let that be removed from you along with everything that's bad. And so become for one another kind, compassionate, and give graciously to one another as even God in Christ has given graciously to you. So then, you must become for one another imitators of God as children loved by God. And you must walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. And He became a pleasing offering to God. That's what it means to do what Jesus does. Paul has looked at what God has done in Jesus, and he's painted us a picture, he's given us a vision of the way that we relate to one another. And it's practical. It's extremely practical. And and it's not just a set of rules. We were talking in our Sunday morning class about uh, the little headings that go over some of your sections of Scripture. This one sometimes has uh, rules for life in Christ. Oh, that's so uninspiring. That's like a little, that's like, I mean, that's putting this vision, this is a vision of the way we ought to live. It's putting it in the same genre as that poster that hangs by a poolside. You know, the ones about rules for the pool, no running, no bleeding in the pool, you know, all of that stuff that they put on there that you're not supposed to do. You know, why? Because it's bad. There's even a rationale for that. This is much more than a just a disembodied list of rules. It all makes sense because of what God did in Christ and what He does for us. And it all comes under that one imperative. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That sounds strange. This talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? If you got King James, I think it might say vex the Holy Spirit. I don't even know the last time that I vexed someone. That's, uh, you know, I'm not even sure what that means. Uh, It comes, it's, Paul's borrowing language from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 63, where the people of God, they rebelled against God, and it grieved his Holy Spirit, because then he found himself at odds with them, and he had to become their enemy because he was against the things that they were doing. So what he's saying to us is don't grieve God's Holy Spirit by embodying those things that God is against. And then you see four imperatives that have to do with the way that we, for example, the way that we respond to truth. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. When it comes to truth, you're going to speak it. You're going you're to do away with all falsehoods. Not only the falsehoods of things that, that are not true, but, but we're going to get away from these ideas of protective lying, that we're going to keep things from people because we're afraid they can't handle it. We're going to be a truthful community. 
One preacher said years ago in one of his books, it's actually in the footnote of one of his books, and I love this statement. He said, the greatest need of people is to be a part of a truthful community. And when you consider the fact that people constantly today are frustrated by the fact that they feel like they're leaders and they feel like they're community, they feel like the advertising is just lying to them, wouldn't it be refreshing to be a part of a people where they are committed to telling the truth? Even if the truth isn't always comfortable or good to hear, at least that truth is being told in love. He says, you're going to be a people who tell the truth. You're going to speak the truth with each other. Why? Because you're members of the same body. It makes no sense to lie to one another. And when it comes to anger, he's going to say, now notice, he says, be angry, but don't sin. This is an interesting statement. And sometimes this is warped into an excuse to have righteous indignation. Well, you know, righteous anger, nothing wrong with righteous anger. No, there's nothing wrong with righteous anger as long as it doesn't last for more than 24 hours. If it lasts more than 24 hours, you're not doing anything with it. If you think that you've got righteous anger that's lasting a lot more than 24 hours, chances are that you're turning your own little personal vendetta, you're you're making that God's opinion. The point here is, notice every little imperative that's said there. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Does that remind you of a biblical story? Any biblical story at all about sin crouching at the door and not giving it an opportunity? How about Cain and Abel? Which has to do with the way that we treat one another. When you read Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4, Genesis 3 is about the way that sin damaged the relationship between us and God. Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, is how God is how we damage the relationship with one another. God warns Cain. He says, You're upset. You're angry. Do something about it, Cain. Sin is crouching outside your door. It wants to have its way with you. Do something about it. The message about anger is we've got to manage it. You're going to feel angry. Sometimes we're going to have just cause to feel angry. Sometimes our anger is going to be righteous, but you've got to do something with it. Because uncontrolled, undisciplined, that anger can cause a lot of problems. The main reason it causes problems is that it gives an opportunity for Satan to get involved. That doesn't mean we're not going to feel it. Feeling anger in and of itself is not a sin. He says feel anger, but don't sin. In other words, behavior matters. You know, we, all, we always say to people in conflict, look, you and other people may be in conflict with one another, and chances are people see things a different way. They look at things not the same way, and both sides think they're right. Well, here's the fact of the matter. We can't always convince people to see things our way, and we can't always change other people's thinking. So at the end of the day, it comes down to this. You can think whatever you want. You can feel whatever you want. But you can't do whatever you want. And you might be right or wrong about what you think and what you feel. And you can live with that, and we can too, to a certain extent. But it comes down to that behavior where we have to treat each other right. Be angry, but don't sin. 
The other imperative here has to do with money. It has to do with things. It has to do with stuff. You know, we may or may not feel like that's such a problem, but it, but it is. It is a problem that, that people often want to take stuff or they find opportunities to, uh, to cheat the system or work the system so that they can get something. And it's especially a problem among people who don't have very much. But he says, instead of living in such a way that you're going to find a way to get what you want. Now, now this is true whether it's people who steal from one another. And by the way, I, I spent, I spent a, uh, an evening in London with, with homeless people. And I saw one of these, uh, this, this guy I was talking to the whole time. He was kind of my guide into the world of the homeless in London. He walked up to another beggar and he took all of his money. And I said, why would you take his money? He said, well, you know, he's going to use it for bad things. He's using it for drugs. He, he's going to hurt himself. I said, you're wanting money so that you can go buy a, 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 bottle, a, a bottle of bourbon. You know? Well, yeah, but, you know, that's different. He justified thieving from another homeless person. Now, you have that. Then you have the justifications of thieving that happen in much more sophisticated ways. The, the change in behavior that Ephesians lays out there is instead of finding ways to take from people, we're going to find a way to work, to do what's good, so that we might have something that we can share with those who have need. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of treating one another. And when the church embodies that principle of sharing, then we're behaving, we're, we're putting into practice the vision of God. Finally, he has the idea of words. That the words that we speak, this is, this is about more than just avoiding the seven dirty words which now it seems like people want to say you know more and more words that once used to be unacceptable are now quite acceptable i'm not even sure if anybody really knows what acceptable and unacceptable words are anymore but any word can be an unacceptable word if it's used to the harm of others Here Paul is comparing two different kinds of words. He says there are words that are fit and there's words that are beneficial and there are words that are unfit. There are words that are rotten. You have good words, fresh words, and you have rotten, spoiled words. And by the way, a rotten, spoiled word doesn't just mean that it's a word that society shuns. It may be a word that is perfectly acceptable to speak, but if it causes damage and harm, then it's unfit for Christians, for disciples to be using that. He says, what needs to come out of your mouth are words that have some good for building up others so that those who hear it might receive grace. That's how words are going to be used. In other words, some words build unity and some words tear unity apart. These sins that grieve the Holy Spirit are often those sins that are overlooked because they might be socially acceptable or they might be justified in some way. But this is the first set of behaviors that Paul addresses because these things tear apart the unity of the body of Christ. Now, in the next section, he'll talk about how it's appropriate to live like people who are no longer in darkness, but live like people who are in the light. 
And those who lived in darkness, their life is marked by sexual immorality, by impurity, greediness, obscenity, foolish and crude talk. And he says, that's what you were. But now that you're in Christ, the contrast is what ought to be manifested in your life is holiness and thankfulness. And you ought to live your life in such a way that it shines a light on the darkness in the world. Not to be self-righteous, not to be holier than thou, but to show a better way. In other words, you and I are showing the world what Jesus would do, what Jesus is like. If people are going to follow the teaching to do what Jesus would do, we have to know what Jesus would do. And the way you know what Jesus would do is to know Jesus. He is the light. Between now and next Sunday, what I want to ask you to do, you've got those cards that invite people to church. I'm not going to explain it, and I don't care to explain it, and I don't know why it is, but it's Easter Sunday. People feel like they need to be in church. Hey, let's pray. Thank God for that. Get them together. Bring them in. Tell them that you want them to be your guests. Tell them that you want them sitting right next to you. Tell them that you're happy. And if they give you that business about, well, you know, I don't want to be a -a once-a-year Christian, say, well, then you don't have to be. But thank God you're here this Sunday. It's the Lord's day. Just do whatever it takes. But we're going to preach the resurrection. We're going to preach the resurrection, we're going to worship, and we're going to shine light into darkness, because that's what the resurrection does. I'm asking you today, if, if, if you want to know Jesus better, if you want to be born into Christ through baptism, as Paul says, you put on Christ. It's, like, it's a new identity, it's a new set of clothes. It's a a new persona. We're going to imitate God. Christ was baptized, and we're baptized because we imitate Christ. We're doing the same thing that he does, obedience. We're following his footsteps, and the first footstep is through the river of baptism. If you need encouragement, Because as the body of Christ, we're always encouraged. Remember, we're not called to flawless perfection. We're called to growing behavior. And that's why we need one another. Maybe you need somebody to speak truthfully with you. Maybe you need somebody to help you manage your anger. Maybe you need somebody to help you stop worrying about stuff. Maybe you just need to hear a word that builds you up. Or maybe you need to repent for words that tear others down. Well, we leave this time open. So that we can respond to one another in truth and love. Let's stand. Let's sing this song. Elders will be here. They'll be in room 100. Let us know this morning if we can serve you.